Ecclesiastes chapter 11 here. Solomon is um, returning now to the theme of man's inability to control the times. Right, man, man cannot control the events. No one, no one saw this coming. No one can really control what's taking place. We're doing our best to scramble around and, and figure it all out. But no one controls the times. And to emphasize uh, man's ignorance on the future, Solomon is repeating a phrase throughout this uh, chapter. Uh, four times he's going to say the phrase, you don't know. You don't know. You just don't know. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. You don't know how to control these things. And so you need to be okay with uh, not knowing. That's definitely been a theme that's come up a couple times in Ecclesiastes. We just don't know. We don't know what God does in the world, and we don't have um, any control over it. We can all come up with different ideas as to why this is happening and what God might be doing with this, but none of us know. None of us can come to you and say, this is what God is doing. If anyone does that, uh, they're really, they're really be, trying to be God. We don't know. We don't know God's ways. I believe he is using this. I think he's using all things uh, for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. But I don't know what exactly he's doing this. In fact, he's probably doing a million things simultaneously. What is he doing in this through, uh, with this uh, in your heart? What, what is he doing in, in uh, the, your neighbor's life? What, what's he doing in your coworker's life with this event, right? He's, he is so amazingly wise and vast He's accomplishing millions of things with one event, but we don't know what the one thing is. And as Christians, we do still have a a, a significant amount of ignorance when it comes uh, to this. We don't know what's happening, why it's happening. We don't know what will happen after uh, this. And so this section comes to us at a very opportune time. Originally, I was going to have a Mother's Day special message planned, and then I, I looked at this passage and I said, well, I mean... This, this is obviously what God wants me to, to, to teach. And I'm going to draw your attention right away to the beginning of the chapter because you'll see what I mean. Look at chapter 11, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days, giving a serving to seven and also to eight. For you do not know what evil will be on the earth. We definitely find ourselves today with... Uh, facing a very great evil on the earth. It's a very great evil, but in a very small thing, isn't it? This coronavirus pandemic, it's taken the earth by storm. Every government on the planet has been affected by it. They've been faced with the responsibility to to exercise diligence in the face of this threat. And amazingly, this morning, I read a very interesting uh, article in the Wall Street Journal. And the article was looking at six past disasters uh, in an effort to, to really see how the government handled uh, the trade-off between public health, public safety, right? Looking out for them, but also the economic stability. That's what our governments are trying to do in this, right? How do we, how do we keep the, the public safe, but also maintain some kind of stabilized economy? Uh, because if you go too far one way, then the other one is affected most greatly. And so six past um, disasters were looked at. The Spanish flu of 1918, the Asian flu of 1957, the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center, Trade Center in 2001, the SARS um, epidemic in 2003, the global financial crisis of 2008 to, to 2009, and the Japanese nuclear meltdown of 2011. Now, all of those, uh, not all of those are sort of 
uh, pandemic epidemic type of things. But the quote from the article said this, disasters often create permanent changes to habits, permanent changes to habits. And the most affected industries and regions can take years to recover. I mean, that is certainly true. Hurricane Katrina um, came uh, into New Orleans in 2005. And, and even today, New Orleans still has not reached population and economy-wise the, the pre-Katrina levels. It has still not reached that. That's how devastating that disaster was. And every disaster creates some kind of permanent change. And we have to be prepared for some kind of permanent change that will come about by this. Your world will, will not be the same. I know everyone just like wants this to pass by and will just go back to normal. There will be things that will have changed permanently because of what has come upon the world. It looked ex- uh, specifically at a comment made by President Woodrow Wilson, who was in office at the time of the Spanish flu in 1918. And he said this, it is our duty to keep the people from fear. Worry kills more people than the epidemic. Now on the surface, that sounds right. Yeah, we need to keep people from fear because the worry is going to kill more people. But the cities that took that attitude, they saw the highest death tolls. Now, I'm going to say something that's a little controversial probably, but I, um, I, this, this actually comes from uh, author Paul David Tripp. He had the same thought, and I saw this this week. And he said this, be afraid, but don't give way to fear. Be afraid, but don't give way to fear. It draws into question, what did Woodrow Wilson really, what kind of advice did he, did he give? And if people really weren't afraid and they just went about their lives cavalierly, well, those cities, they experienced more death because they weren't being responsible. Paul David Tripp says, be afraid, but don't give way to fear. He says, let me explain that contradictory statement. Fear is one of God's good gifts to us. And I think there are three types of spiritually healthy fear. One is a fear of God. That's that holy reverence of of the Almighty living in awe of and submitting to king of the universe. That's fear of God. And Christians understand that kind of uh, fear. But the second is rapid response fear. And that's our instinctual ability to react in a moment of danger. It's like the parent or the mom who spontaneously uh, leaps into action to protect their child uh, right before they hurt themselves, right? They see something, there's danger about to happen. That's a, that's a fearful action. It's a rapid response and they're able to protect their child. It's a good thing. And the third thing is appropriate concern. And that allows us to be sobered by what we are facing. And with our God-given ability to analyze, we make wise and planned choices to protect ourselves and those we love. And God designed us with the ability to be afraid because he loves us and he wants to protect us. Be afraid, but don't give way to fear. And now he talks about giving way to fear. Giving way to fear is characterized by meditating on the trouble we are facing and forgetting God in the process. This fear reveals itself when we allow our minds and our hearts to be controlled by what was initially appropriate concern. Is the pandemic, or anything else that makes you afraid for that matter, all you think about, all you read about, all you talk about, If any type of trouble consumes your meditation, the larger it will loom, the more impossible a solution will seem, and the more frightened you will become. 
in this world, you will face danger. So ignoring that reality, that's not wise. God has given you the ability to be concerned. So acting as if there is no reason for concern is not the solution. The problem is, is that your meditation has been consumed by the trouble you are facing. Whenever trouble consumes our meditation, it's because we have ultimately forgotten God. We've forgotten that there is a Lord of glory, wisdom, goodness, power, and grace who sits on the throne of his universe. No difficulty of any kind, no person, place, or pandemic can negate his good and glorious promises to his children. As you look horizontally, interesting that he says that, things may seem entirely out of control. But when you look vertically, this world is under careful supervision. Wonderful insight by Paul David Tripp. If you'd like a copy of that, I happily send that to you. I get some of those things by email. And uh, I thought that was excellent and so appropriate for the wisdom we get from Solomon as he looks at things horizontally and vertically throughout here. Um, we have an opportunity here to, to see how should we respond in these times of disaster. In that, in that um, article that I was reading in the Wall Street Journal, it ended with this comment. And I think this is a sobering uh, comment and, and one that we should take to, to heart. As in all these past disasters, those six that I had mentioned, the coronavirus pandemic confronts governments, business, and the public with crippling uncertainty and painful trade-offs. The main difference is that this is on a scale and breadth never seen in living memory. So what the world is waking up to is the fact that we're facing something that we've never faced on this scale and on this breadth before. And so we need to be prepared for that. So how does the Christian do that? On the one hand, the Christian response seems really um, obvious and easy, right? Because Jesus called us to hold on to this life with a loose grip, um, to, to be willing to let it go. He told us to um, treasure up, uh, store up our treasures in heaven and not on earth, right? He counseled us to and commanded us to deny ourselves and take up our crosses daily and follow him. But on the other hand, and through many parables, he instructs us to live at this, this life, trust, entrusting obedience to him, and to bear fruit during it. Uh, even as Jeremiah's, uh, the passage in Jeremiah talked about, that you continue to bear fruit even in the midst of difficulty. So that's what this passage is going to address today. How are we to be diligent in the midst of disaster? I mean, shouldn't I just curl up in a ball and, and hide in a hole in the ground until this whole thing passes over? Solomon would say, no. Let's read the passage today. We'll be looking at chapter 11, just verses 1 through 8. Verse 1, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days, giving a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know what is the way of the wind, or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed. In the evening do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Truly the light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. All that is coming is vanity. 
Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word today. We do pray for your blessing upon our time in it, Lord. We do pray that we would see uh, within these uh, pages divine instruction that's so appropriate for the particular time we find ourselves in. Oh, Lord, we just need your wisdom. Help us not to rely on man's wisdom. Help us to see your wisdom. Help us to see the practical applications here and just open up our eyes to this truth, Lord, that we might um, live through this difficult time in a way that glorifies you, in a way that's wise and in a way that's honoring. And Lord, just just help us today. We need your spirit to to guide us into your word today. Open up our hearts for what you want to teach us, what you want to show us. We want to live for you. Help us to do that by your spirit, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a couple of points to this morning and and really just an easy outline here. How how are we going to be diligent in the midst of disaster? And point one is is to be prepared. Be prepared. Um, We need to be prepared for for the potential of, uh, of disasters. We, we, we know that those potential things can come, right? It's a wise thing to be prepared that you're going to have some car troubles, right? That you're going to get a flat tire. And so even as you, you save money and you spend money, one way to be prepared is, you know, I better, better be prepared for some car repair things, right? We use cars so much. and That's just one little example. But verses 1 and 2 really talk about being prepared in the middle of disaster. Look at verse, verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days giving a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. So in the view of life's um, uncertainty and the expectation that sooner or later uh, evil is going to be on the earth, um, some disaster is going to befall us. We should be prepared uh, appropriately. And there's a word there that's used at the beginning. The word is uh, cast. And in the Hebrew, it's shalach. And it just means to send away, to, to let go. To, to send away your bread upon the waters, to let that go. These verses really could speak of an investment. Um, what is an investment? Well, it's preparation for the future, right? That's why you invest. You're investing in a stock or a commodity or a property that won't yield benefits immediately, but in the long term, um, uh, it promises some kind of a return. Well, here, seafaring trade is, is the idea. Seafaring trade of goods, it required an initial investment. Um, whatever item you were sending in trade, because that's how you bartered then, you traded, didn't you? You sent that in trade, that would promise the return of the needed item. And, you know, speaking of mothers today, Proverbs 31, the Proverbs 31 wife is an example of an industrious uh, and diligent woman who provides for the family through planning and through preparation. And she is likened to uh, the, the merchant ships and the trading. In Proverbs 31, 14, it says this, she is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She's like the merchant ships. Now, this doesn't simply mean that she's willing to drive uh, to Newport to get groceries because there's none in Cardiff. Um, that's not true. There are groceries here. Um, but in the ancient world, to send something away, to send something away by, by ship, you know, that took a great deal of faith. You're, you're sending your bread there, hoping to get, you know, maybe some clothing in return as a trade. Um, and you weren't going to see your return on that investment for quite a long time. A great example is from 1 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings chapter 9. Just make a left-hand turn to 1 Kings chapter 9. This also comes from the example of Solomon's reign in 1 Kings 9. Verses 26 to 28. 1 Kings 9, 26 to 28. Look at 26. 
King Solomon also built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Elath on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. Then Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, seamen who knew the sea, to work with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and acquired 420 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. So when you read this and you read about this uh, fleet of ships that Solomon has, it just sounds like they got in a boat, uh, they, they went out in the water, and they got a bunch of gold, and they came back. And it's just that easy, right? Just, just jump in the boat, go over, get some gold, and come back. But if you skip ahead to chapter 10 and look at verse 22, we find out it's not quite that easy. In verse 22, it says this, For the king had merchant ships at sea when the fleet of Hiram, uh, with the fleet of Hiram, and once every three years the merchant ships came bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and monkeys. So um, it wasn't just a matter of jumping in a boat and, and kind of going off. It, it, once every three years, these guys were on a long journey to get all the things and supplies they needed. And those were done by trade. So you're waiting years to get your return on that investment. Um, so, you know, if you send out your bread, initially you'll find it, but you'll find it after many days. That's what this verse says. It, it you know, may take three months. That's okay. But in the midst of a disaster where, I don't know, locusts have eaten your crops, let's say, right? You'll be thankful that not all your eggs were in that basket, but that you had invested in another possibility. So that's a wise thing to be prepared. Look at verse 2. It gives us another example. Give a serving to seven and also uh, to eight. So it's also good to diversify your investments, isn't it? It's a distribution of risk. That's what you're doing. That's what that verse advises. It's, it's prudent to invest maybe in numerous uh, ventures. And there's another Old Testament example of that in Genesis chapter 32. If you turn your Bibles there, Genesis 32, go way back to the beginning. And in this account, Genesis 32, we'll be looking at verses 7 and 8. Uh, this is the account where, where Jacob is coming back to meet his brother Esau. And remember, he offended Esau. Esau was angry at him. And so Jacob is pretty sure Esau wants to kill him. And Jacob has, remember, he's grown his, his supplies. He has uh, wives. He has um, camels and donkeys and all kinds of things. And he's coming back with all that stuff. And he hears that Esau is coming to meet him. And this is his response. Look at verse 7 of Genesis chapter 32. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company, which is left, will escape. So there's a very wise, you know, advice there, right? He's got uh, a bunch of supplies. He's got family. He divides them in two. So if Esau comes to this group and attacks them and kills them, well, at least this group survives. And I've got all those supplies in as well. He is diversified, right? So it also, though, I think speaks to the generosity that we should have in the midst of, of, of difficulty. I mean, it's probably a combination of both. Give a serving to seven and also uh, to eight. Because the overall focus is for us to take a, a long-term view and, and, and hold things loosely in this hand. We don't want to become attached to them. Maybe the best idea that we can get is from Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32, 20 says, Blessed are you who sow beside all waters, who send out freely the feet of the ox and the donkey. I mean, there's, there's those who are sowing, right? They're doing the work, but also freely sending out the ox and the donkey. And I think it's probably just a good, maybe balance of, of both. So we need to be prepared. 
prepared for disaster because disaster is surely going to come. In addition to being prepared, we should be proactive. We should be proactive. And that's verses 3 and 4. Look at verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. So, two illustrations are given here. We have clouds and then we have trees. And what's the idea with the clouds? Well, there's a great verse from Exodus 19.9. I think that's the right picture here. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. It's the thick cloud. It's that kind of idea with this word, the thick, dark cloud. What does a thick, dark cloud mean? <laughs> it's full of water, right? I mean, that's everyone in Wales should know that. Um, if the cloud is full of water, kids, then what's going to happen to all that water in the cloud? It's going to get dropped out. Yeah, it's going to fall. He ain't saying over there. It's going to come out, right? You, we get rain from uh, that. And we know that by looking at the cloud. I'll never forget this, but when, when Jody was pregnant with Cambria, we took a trip to New York City. And so we had a young uh, Ethan and a young Ryan and a uh, pregnant wife. Uh, and we went and stayed in a flat in Manhattan because a friend we had there was out. And so she allowed, allowed us to stay in her flat for free. And it was just a few blocks away from Central Park. And so we just took a stroll down to Central Park. We were in the area of the strawberry fields that uh, the Beatles talk about there. We were in that area over there. And I remember looking up over the, 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 the tall buildings that surround Central Park, and I could see that type of cloud. It was dark. It was full of water. It was foreboding. And I knew what that meant. And I said to Jody, you know what? We better hurry back to that flat because there is nowhere to get out of the rain. That cloud's, that cl- cloud's coming. And she looked and said, yeah, you're right. We got to go. And we, we, we got back as fast as we could to the flat. And as soon as we got up and looked out the window, it was just tipping down, right? And how did we know that? Well, we had gotten used to what that kind of cloud uh, meant. Now, that was learning for us because we came from the desert. We never saw clouds like that. So we learned that, though, having lived in New York for three years and having coming back to it, I remember, oh, wait, wait, that's danger. We got to get out uh, of this. So but this is the idea, right? What's the, what's the point here? You've got this cloud. It's full of uh, rain. It's going gonna, it's gonna to fall. Well, let's look at the other illustration first. I think it will help us. Uh, the other illustration used is of, tree, of a tree, right? Look at the other half of verse 3. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall be. Okay, that seems pretty obvious, right? If a tree falls to the south, that's where it's going to lie. It falls to the north, that's where it's going to lie. Here's the idea. We have, a, we have a sudden fall of a tree, and we have gathering storm clouds, those two things that are coming together. What are we to take away with those two illustrations? Well, the fall of a tree... By natural means, this doesn't mean someone coming in there and, and chopping it down. Okay, the fall of a tree, it cannot be anticipated. Right? We don't know when that tree is going to fall. And we really don't know if it's going to fall to the north or, or the south. We, we had a tree right across the street from our house when we were living in, on, in the Heath area on King George V Drive East. And that tree was dead. I was pretty sure it was dead. It was, it was mostly brown and it was leaning towards our bedroom. Now that one... I could maybe anticipate where it was going to fall, right? Every time the wind blew, I thought that's coming right through our bedroom window any moment, right? But, but the idea here is that we, we really can't anticipate where a tree is really going to, to fall by natural means, usually by a wind, right? A strong wind can blow a tree uh, over. Um, 
By contrast, with storm clouds, we can anticipate those. So here's an event we can't anticipate, but here's storm clouds we can. And the two points made are, are this. Man, we cannot control the difficulties of life. We, 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 we can anticipate some things, right? We can see clouds gathering, but we just can't control those. We can't control the clouds. I can't control the rain or when that cloud is going to let the water out, right? But I can anticipate that. Um, and because there's many things we cannot uh, anticipate, like unexpected events that happen all the time, trees fall, viruses shut down life, right? Those kind of things happen. What th- These two things come together. What's the lesson he's trying to tell us here? Even in the midst uh, or even of difficulties, but global disasters like we find ourselves in, um, it's, it's not an excuse for uh, procrastination, uh, inactivity, but we've got to be proactive. And that comes into play in, in verse 4. So there's things we don't know, things we can't anticipate, but we can't control, things we can't anticipate. But here's the action in verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. There's two important words we're going to look at here. The words observe and the word regards. Observe is shamer. We have looked at it before in uh, Ecclesiastes. And it means to keep, to guard, to observe, uh, or to give heed. Shamer. And I think give heed is probably the right thought here. It's not just something uh, or someone observing the wind. They're not just sort of uh, looking at the, the wind. But this is someone who is waiting for just the right time, the right moment to sow his seed, right? He doesn't want to sow the seed when the wind is blowing, but the wind is always blowing in the Antelope Valley. If, if, you, if you were trying to wait for the wind to stop blowing to sow your seed, you won't sow seed. You get the idea? You, you can't sit there just regarding the wind the whole time waiting to sow. He who regard, or, I'm sorry, observes the wind won't sow. What about the clouds? Well, the word used before clouds is regards, regards, and it's ra'ah. That is just to see or to look at, but also to inspect or to perceive or to consider. I think spending an inordinate amount of time considering the clouds before you do something will keep you from doing anything if you live in Wales, right? Like we, we plan how many barbecue dates? We do plan those because we know that the clouds can keep us from having the barbecue. But, but, but if we just waited until we, we just were always perceiving the clouds, we might not get anything done ever. The point from the examples of the clouds and the rain and the wind is to be diligent constantly. We can't control the future, uh, just like we can't control nature, the falling of the rain, uh, the uprooting of a tree by wind. So if we just sat around waiting for just the right moment, well, we might not, get, not ever get anything done. So be prepared. Be prepared for the unexpected. Be proactive during it. The last point is this, to be productive. To be productive. Verse 5 says, As you don't know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. Well, here's another you do not know phrase, right? And as a reminder, as we look at this passage here, uh, the word for wind that's being used can also mean spirit. Remember, it's that word ruach, and it can mean mind, breath, and um, wind or, or spirit. And the same word was used back in verse 4, and obviously it's translated as wind. It's used here as well, and again, it's translated as wind. But, but my Bible has a little note next to it that says it may mean spirit. Why does that have that little note? Why, may, why could it possibly mean spirit? Well, 
Jesus said something in John chapter 3, verse 8, which many believe to be a reference to this passage in Ecclesiastes. And I'll put it up on the screen for you. John 3, 8 says this. You might remember this. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You might remember that. That's, that's the time that Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus about being born again, being born from above, being born from the Spirit. And the idea is it, this is a birth that you can't control. You can't control your natural birth, and you need, you need a birth uh, that is from above that you also cannot uh, control. And he uses the analogy of the wind. It goes where it wants. You can't you know, tell where it comes from, where it's going. Well, that's everyone who's born of the Spirit. It's a work that you can't control because Nicodemus was trying to control his works, right? He was trying to get to heaven by works that he could control. And Jesus says you can't control the way to heaven. You need it by a way you cannot control. You need a birth by the Spirit. I bring that up because the wind and the word spirit are the same word here in the passage that we're looking at. In, in the Greek, uh, in John 3, it's pneuma, and it can mean both, but here it's ruach. Um, and so the idea is this, the wind, it cannot be controlled. You can get a general idea of its direction, you, you know, you, you, but where it comes from, where it goes, you can't precisely determine. You can't control it. But its effects, its effects can be observed. I mentioned to you before, because the wind blows in the Antelope Valley, you know it because of all the trees. They all lean to the side. They lean the, next, the right direction. So you know two things, actually. You know that the wind is very strong, and you know which way the wind blows. There's no trees that go that way. They all go this way. They all, they all face east. They all face the same direction. That's the idea. You can see the effects. In the same way, the work of the Spirit, it can't be controlled. Um, it can't be precisely determined. It's His sovereign work of regeneration in the human heart, and that is a mystery. But its effects can be seen in the transformed lives of those who are born again by the Spirit. So what's Solomon's point here? Well, if it's meant to be wind, his point is this. That it's the same as, as Jesus' point regarding the wind. We don't know the way of the wind or the manner of the wind. And, and just like we don't know how bones grow in the womb. That's the illustration he gives us there. We'll look at that in a moment. If the word is meant to be spirit, well, the mystery of the human spirit and the mystery of the growth of a child in the womb, that fits as well. The point is still the same. They're both examples of human ignorance. We just don't know these things. It's our ignorance regarding the works of God. We don't know the works of God. Who makes everything? Did you notice that he says that? He makes everything, all of it. A great passage is in Isaiah 44, 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer and he who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. That's a great passage. You have the Redeemer, you have the Lord. He is the one who forms you in the womb, but he also is the one who stretches out the heavens, right? He makes all things. He does all things. So just like the, 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 the mysterious miracle of, of birth and someone growing inside another person is, is so mysterious to us, so is the fact that he can make everything. Um, and there it is. He, he formed us. He did this in the womb. And in many ways, we're still trying to figure this mystery out. Yes, we have technology now that allows us to see the child growing in the womb. We can see this progress, which number one tells us that is a living being. That is a human child, right? And we see the beating of the heart. We, technology allows us to see those things. But how all those things come together is, is so mysterious. We can't replicate that. It is amazing. It's a miracle. It's a work of, of God. 
And with technology today, we can monitor the progress of a growth. And there's a great video I'm going to share with you right now. It's a little bit long, but it's very, very good. Just check it out. Watch this. Isn't that an incredible, uh, incredible video there? That's amazing with our technology, isn't it? That we can, we can see in the womb and we can see, well, what in, in Solomon's day, what he couldn't see. He couldn't see the bones growing um, in, in the womb. But that's not his point. Um, his point is that that is such a mysterious process. We just don't know how all that that works. I mean, boom, there's this this child. We can see it all coming together. But it's not an amazing thing. We can't see little cranes and bulldozers, right, roaming around the womb and building a baby. It's just coming together. It's an amazing thing. That has to be a work of God. And God says that in Isaiah, right? I, I formed you in the womb. And the idea is this. God makes not just babies, but everything. He makes everything. And that means he's working even in this world now, even in the midst of a pandemic. There are aspects of God and his work that defy explanation for sure. And our our very beginnings are somewhat shrouded in mystery. Uh, And this underlies the reality of our, our whole world that we're living in. So this should drive us to a sense of need. We need God. We're dependent upon uh, him. For those who have faith in him, for the believer, do we suddenly then become less ignorant regarding the mysterious work of God? No. In fact, there's a great quote by Michael Eaton. He's a commentator. He, He said this, the life of faith does not remove the problem of ignorance. Rather, it enables us to live with it. Faith flourishes in the mystery of providence. It does not abolish it. That's amazing. Our, our faith allows us to live in the midst of that and just not knowing. It's, it's okay to not know. How many people have you run into, even in the last week or so, that have just so fearful about not knowing what's going to happen? Where is this going to go? All the panic buying that's going on. Those are people whose, whose faith needs to flourish in the light of God's providence, even in the midst of this. So what should we do? Verse 6. <clears throat> In the morning, sow your seed, and in the evening, do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So morning and evening, that just gives a sense of a good day's work. It's a sense of totality of a day, morning and evening. And what's the reason Solomon gives us for putting in a full day's, uh, day's work, sowing your seed in the, in the morning and in the evening? Well, he says, for you do not know what will prosper, either this or that or whether both alike will be good. Since we can't know, 100% sure we can't know, you know, what, what enterprises will be successful, um, the proper approach is just to give our, ourselves to the responsibilities in hand, right? And to be productive. There are no guarantees that your productiveness will be beneficial. But ignorance, ignorance of the futures, that's not an excuse for laziness. We've got to still be uh, productive, why should we be productive and proactive and uh, prepared ultimately? Why, why all these points? Why is he bring this up? Because life's joys don't come easily. Uh, Solomon has been encouraging us to enjoy the life that we have uh, here on earth. And his idea is here, there's so many unknowns and so many things we don't know, but the God who makes everything knows, right? And so we just need to continue on planning and preparing and being productive in the midst of those things. But look what he says here in verse, verses 7 and 8, and it's so sobering here. Truly the light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, 
Yet let them remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. All that is coming is vanity. Now, Solomon is writing metaphorically here of light and darkness as figures of life and death. The light is described as sweet, as, as pleasant, isn't it? Sweet is used in the Old Testament of the sweetness of honey, and it's the opposite of, of bitter. Um, life isn't meant to be bitter. A whole lot of bitter people in this life, not so many sweet. But it's because they're not experiencing the sweetness of life that Solomon is talking about. Life is sweet. It's to be, it's to be savored as something pleasant. The disasters and the unknowns of life uh, should not create for us a sense that we, we cannot or we should not enjoy this life. Solomon has been saying exactly the opposite. Life is good. It's great to open your eyes upon the sun. Truly light is sweet. It's pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. How many of you were so excited to see the sun yesterday and today? Like I prayed earlier, it's such a blessing to have a glimpse of the sun, to know that the sun is still there, even in the midst of darkness. And Psalm 97.11 says, Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Um, we're, we're the righteous. Uh, light is sown for us. If we have the right perspective, right? If it, it, even if the things of life are dark, uh, we should still have the light because it's something that's sown in our heart. Ultimately, light is going to represent eternal life for the believer. If you think about it that way, right? That's what, that's the light we're going to. Isaiah 60 verses 19 and 20, such a great promise here. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord will be to you an everlasting light, and your God your glory. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your morning shall be ended. Wow. Do you want that kind of perspective on life? that it's good, that it's sweet? Do you want the hope of eternal life? Living in the light of the everlasting God, you can have that. You don't have to respond to life with anxiety, uh, with dread, with fear. You can live many, many days and rejoice in them all. You can live only a few years and rejoice in them all. And you should. Because the reason given for us here in this passage is the days of darkness will be many. Here, darkness denotes death. It's the absence of light. And li listen to how Job describes it. Job describes it this way in Job 10, 21 to 22. Before I go to the place from which I shall not return, to the land of darkness and the shadow of death, a land as dark as darkness itself, as the shadow of death without any order, where even the light is like darkness. <clears throat> wow, he paints a dark picture there, right? Where even the light, whatever light is there, even that light is darkness. There's no light after death is his point. Solomon is looking again from a horizontal view. Remember, this is not speaking about living eternally in heaven. And neither is Job, that this is just death, right? That the light ceases there. You don't have that anymore. And his point is, is this rejoicing in this life is an urgent matter. Because you, you, you have no opportunity for that after, after death in rejoicing in this life, right? Because this, this is this life. You have the opportunity uh, now. Um, what is the future then? What is the future for, for us 
and for those who, who don't know Christ. In Matthew 8, verses 11 and 12, Jesus said, I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so he is talking here. Now we're looking at the horizontal view, right? Um, after death, there will be many, Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and those with them that will, will sit in the kingdom of heaven. But there'll be others who will be cast into outer uh, darkness, that there will still be this idea of uh, darkness after life. So tell me if this makes sense, to walk through this life with no hope, to looking at this life as, as only dark, as dreary, as full of dread, in, in fear, and, and reject the hope that we have in Christ. Reject eternity. Reject that there is a God who governs these things. In fact, then, you are embracing hopelessness, and your eternity is still darkness. Right? There's, no, there's no future hope there at all. I, I, I embrace darkness here, and I embrace darkness in the life to come. But Jesus promises a different, a different path. In John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus came to be the light in this life, that we would have the light in this life, but also in the next, as we saw in Isaiah. He's going to be our, our light. Jesus came that we might have life and peace. And you might remember, um, he, he said that he came to have a life and that we might have it abundantly. That's the kind of life that he wants to give us. That's a life of peace. And you can have that. Romans 5.1 too, he says, we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the peace. So life and peace, those two things Jesus came uh, to bring. John 3.16 tells us that, that, that he gave, God gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The life that is promised beyond here beyond uh, this, this life, is the greatest life. We, we make the best of this life. We are productive in this life. And Christians, we walk in this life knowing the light of the world has come, knowing the light that will be ours in eternity. And my question for you is, do you want that peace in this world? I know so many people are struggling to find purpose right now, trying to figure out what's going on, Maybe hiding in, in, in fear. You don't have to have that fear if you embrace the one who's in control of these things. You can have the peace and you can have the life that's promised through Jesus Christ, but there's going to be a couple of steps you have to take. First, you need to recognize that you're a sinner, that you do sin. When I see uh, things like this, disasters like this, you know what I see? I don't see the goodness of man come out. I see the evil of man come out. People start looking out for themselves. Even the nicest of people, right? The panic buying and the fighting that's going on in the stores, that shows the wickedness of man. Ultimately, when push comes to shove, it's self-preservation. Survival of the fittest. I'm going to think about myself and I'll, I'll, I'll knock out anyone who's trying to get in my way. No, no. The disasters, the pandemics don't reveal man's innate goodness. They reveal man's innate wickedness. Our, our sinful nature is on display. And that's what the Bible talks about. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't, we don't, um, no man is without sin. 
We cannot attain to God's perfection. We cannot attain to his glory. And peace and life come from God. But sin separates you from that. You can't, you can't get that on your own. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. God will not even hear you because your sins have separated you. You've got to <coughs> excuse me, understand that sin is the main thing that separates you. And the wages of sin is death. You've got to recognize that you're a sinner. Listen, sin is a far greater sickness, a far greater plague than this coronavirus. It has far greater implications than than this coronavirus will ever happen because this has implications for eternity. Don't be fearful of the coronavirus, but do fear him who's going to punish those who sin. God is, is angry with those who sin, but he has promised a way past that. He's given us a remedy. You know, scientists are right now trying to figure out a remedy for the coronavirus, right? They're trying to find some sort of cure for it. God has already provided the cure for the greatest epidemic, pandemic that's ever plagued man, and that is sin. He's provided it. And it came in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He put his own son on the cross to die for us, to be our substitute so that we would not have to die. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive by the Spirit. Peter says that Jesus died so that he could bring us to God. Why? Because we're separated from him. Someone needs to bring us uh, to him. And Jesus came as a man and he was fully man, yet he was fully God. He represented man and man's case and he represented God and God's case. He represents both parties. When you have two parties that don't agree, what do you need? You need a mediator. You need someone that can represent the parties. And usually you have uh, one for each party, right? Well, Jesus is the mediator for both man and and for God. In 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is the mediator. He is the one who was able to bring God and man together. How? By his death on the cross. The only thing that you need to do is accept his solution. Accept the cure that God has provided for the plague on man. That, That is it. All you have to do is receive it. What if you heard today, you had the coronavirus and you heard today, you could get the vaccine for that. You could get it today. Would you want it? Would you want to receive it? Of course you would. You would, yes, give me that. The same thing applies here. You are plagued with sin. Would you not want the vaccine that would cure that? God says, here it is. You just need to accept it. It's my son. My son is the, the cure. And to accept him, very simple. It just says, confess. Put away pride. Put away arrogance and confess that Jesus is Lord. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him for the dead, you'll be saved. You'll be saved. You don't have to recite some, you know, incantation. There's no magic words. Uh, There's no ritual you need to perform. You just need to accept it. Confess it with your mouth. Say, he is Lord. I, I believe it now. And you will be received. You will become his child. He will become your father. John 1, 12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. Do you believe him? Do you want to be his child? He'll be your father. He'll protect you from these things. Or will you give way to arrogance? Will you give way to pride and refuse to accept? How about with today, with the coronavirus? Will you give way to, to fear? 
Will you fear that? I say don't. But do fear the virus of sin. It's a far deadlier plague that is consuming mankind. And it will lead to, as Solomon says here, days of darkness and they will be many. I implore you today that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, uh, there is a solution. You can accept him today. And the promise is not just for eternity, but it's here for now. You can have life and life abundant. You can live in this world of, of doubt and fear and despair. You can live in this world with hope. And that is my encouragement to you uh, today, that you would make that choice for him. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word is truth. And Lord, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for us. Thank you that he is the way, the truth, and the life that you promised life to us. And we thank you that, um, Lord, you just had Solomon write such strong and appropriate words for today. We don't know what evil will be on the earth. After this one, there will be another. We don't know what disaster may befall us. We thank you for the wise instructions to be prepared and proactive and productive during it. And the reason is we, we need to make the most of this life. We have one life to live, one life to live for you. Will we live it in fear? Will we live it for ourselves? Or will we live it joyfully and in hope and for you and for your glory? Oh God, I pray that we would choose the latter. Lord, help us to live for you, to love you, to praise you, to bring glory to you, Lord. This is just a precursor to the life to come that we would dwell with you, the light and the life forever. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.